What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the conversation on TYT. I am your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. We have such a good show for you today. Two excellent, excellent guests. My first guest is Jessica Sclarain. I think I pronounced that right. Sclarain. Excuse me, Jessica. Jessica Sclarain, <laughs> the Democratic candidate for US Senate in Delaware. She is running for a seat that is currently held by Chris Coons. Jessica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Francesca. I apologize for bumbling your last name. You know, if it if it hadn't already been my whole life, I would maybe get upset, but <laughs> it's fine. No sweat. Francesca Fiorentini. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it all the time. I'm just like, sound it out. Just read. Right. Um, <laughs> Jessica, you're so you're running to be the Democratic nominee for this Senate seat, going up against Chris Coons. You're 34. Um, Tell me why you decided to jump into this race. Yeah, I mean, the core issue is that we need to break the current system of power in our country and completely rebuild it. And we do not currently have a senator in Delaware that recognizes that problem and is focused on fixing it. I mean, my exposure to that predominantly has frankly come through the workplace of being subjected to jobs where I didn't make a living wage, of jobs where I didn't get health care or health insurance even, I having inconsistent schedules and frankly being assaulted and harassed by the people in power in that workplace. And I come from a background of nonprofit volunteerism. You know, that was how I wanted to give back and try to frankly prevent other women and girls from having these experiences. Right. So, I volunteered as a tutor and a mentor here in Wilmington, Delaware where I live for many years, and then I joined the board of a nonprofit called Girls Inc of Delaware that allowed me to again give programming to make girls like strong and confident and civically engaged and fight for their rights at a state level. But even with years of that work, just feeling like no matter what, there's always another girl who's gonna come through that door because we're not changing the conditions that mm. she lives in. We're not changing mm -hmm. the neighborhoods that she comes from. We are not getting her or in her family more resources. We are just solving, or not barely solving, we're treating symptoms without solving the root causes of what require all of this philanthropy and charity and nonprofit work. And I really just recognize that you're right, I'm in my mid 30s and I don't wanna look up in another 10 years and still have these problems be the ones that we're facing. Like wealth inequality and the climate crisis and racial inequality. Like we have given the people in power time and they have not made enough change and it's it's time for a new generation to take over. Yeah, that is that is a powerful reason to wanna actually run for office. Being in the nonprofit sector, I know it's it's like banging your head up against a wall. Um, so you're running to to unseat this Democratic incumbent, Chris Coons. Um, what's the biggest challenge for you as a progressive, as a woman, against someone who's got, you know, 52% approval rating, which isn't that great, but it's you know, still mm -hmm. over 50%. What what are your challenges? What's the things you're looking at right now? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest thing, of course, is name recognition, right? Like that goes a long way in elections, but that's the work that we've been doing since we launched this campaign in November. We were out week one canvassing and like every single weekend, multiple shifts, knocking doors and talking to voters. So we have been making progress on that issue like since we launched. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've built a ton of momentum even before 
COVID hit and pandemic hit that built a strong foundation. So we have continued to do that voter contact through this pandemic and our inability to knock on doors via phone banking. And we're still turning out dozens of volunteers. You know, We are making literally tens of thousands of calls every single week to reach Delawareans because that's a way that we can win in a state like Delaware. Like we believe this is the most winnable Senate seat for progressives mm-hmm. because Delaware is small. It's smaller than most congressional districts. Like we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of votes, not not hundreds of thousands of votes. When sure. you look at the race in Colorado, ours is a much smaller scale. So we have the ability to really make a difference with a smaller amount of investment, even from just manpower and dollars. For sure. And that's what we've been working on is building up that volunteer network and building up donations. Of course, we always need more of that, but that's where the work has come from. You make and, a and good a, point. And a fairly, okay. but a fairly solidly blue district. So you're yeah. basically saying it's a fairly, it's a solidly blue state. It's a small state, it's a winnable state. So this is where progressives like yourself should be channeling our energy. Absolutely, like this is the right investment to make. Because we heard from a few candidates who came so close in the last few weeks that they just hit the momentum a little bit too late. The volunteers showed up a little bit too late. And we don't wanna make that mistake with this race. We have two and a half months, our election is September 15th. Like, yes, if you show up in August, I will take you. But I I want people to show up now because we have the infrastructure in place to accept those volunteers. You know, if we can get, For example, 30 people making phone calls in this campaign every single day. We can call every single Democrat in Delaware every week. Mm -hmm. Like that's the scale that we're talking about. So this is a really great place to invest. And we're seeing that we are already in Chris Coons's head. You know, he is absolutely on his back foot. He's Mm. got third parties running attack campaigns against me right now. He uh, earlier or late June, he was running push polls, attempting to paint me as extreme, even though the things that we are running on, the majority of Delawareans agree with. You know, $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal. These are all things that are supported by a majority of Delawareans that he are policies that he opposes. So mm. we have him, I think, running scared. He's frankly polling what his policy position should be right now. And we're hearing this from our supporters, like they're reporting, like he's asking me what side of an issue he should be on. So we're even- So you're already having an impact no matter what happens in September. You're you're making him more accountable to, like you're saying, these issues that really aren't that radical, like fifteen dollar minimum wage. Right. Um, at this point, we know that should probably be higher. Exactly. One of those things, you know, Chris Coons is like he's number four in the Senate in terms of um, Democrats who who lead the Senate. Um, one of the things that he voted on recently was to remain in Afghanistan and to not pull out troops from that war. However, many, you know, 20 plus years that we 20 years, more than half my life at this point. Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. So what would you have done different? Would you would you have voted to pull troops out or keep them in? Yeah, I mean, a huge piece of my platform is fighting for peace, not war, right? Like I would absolutely vote to end the wars that we have been in forever. I mean, this is a defining issue for people in my generation is that we have had fewer years of our life that we weren't at war than those years that we were. 
And I think a lot of people have recognized that the way that you actually keep our country safe is by investing in a broader concept of public safety and public health, creating more stability and in, in, by investing in health and education and social programs in our country, rather than solely putting all of our resources into a military that more than half of that money just goes to extremely powerful defense contractors. It's not even going to benefits and pay for the people who are in uniform. It's going to incredibly moneyed interest and defense contractors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you you say you're running on Medicare for all, a Green New Deal. Um, what What's an issue that you're most passionate about out of your entire platform? What's the one that you're like, this is it. If I get into the Senate, um, this will be my, my baby. Yeah, so the thing that I hear the most from everyone in Delaware is healthcare. Like it is, it is a system that is completely failing Delawareans. Delaware has the eighth highest number of people who are suffering under medical debt right now. Almost 30% of our state is is struggling to pay medical debt. Like it is an issue I hear on every single phone call, and I know that that is an issue that a lot of candidates are championing right now. But it is the one that I see that will make the biggest impact in Delawareans' lives because it comes up on every single conversation. Nice. All right, so just we only have a little bit of time left, but I wanted I wanted to ask you: You are running for a seat that Joe Biden used to hold mm-hmm. before Chris Coons, or before that, right? And mm-hmm. and and you are also someone who said early on that you believed Tara Reid's allegations against him, and I know that was not an easy stance to take, but when you think about it, it kind of is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, how are you feeling now and how are you feeling about um, this this position that I think many people are being put in where they want to get Donald Trump out, um, but they also don't want to vote for somebody who has a record of sexual assault. Um, where are you Where are you at on that? And do you believe that we should still be voting for Joe Biden after all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree we have to get Donald Trump out of office. But my issue, particularly with Tara Reid and so many women who come forward is that we lack a system of justice for mm-hmm. these issues. And I thought that's what we were fighting for with Me Too. Like I thought what we were saying with Me Too was women deserve to be heard and they deserve to have some sort of structure and system to find justice. And we didn't get there, right? But that's what I thought we were going to keep pushing for. And that was sort of the why I wanted to make sure we had that conversation because we can't simply say that the, the way to handle these allegations is to throw them to the court of public opinion and people on Twitter doing their own research into frankly, not even the person that they <laughs> that made the allegation and trying to undercut people rather than focusing on what can we actually do as a society and as a country to fix this rampant issue of sexual harassment. You know, I mentioned that is what I experienced in my very first job as a teenager. Like very right. similar story. Right. I don't know people who don't have these stories. So yeah. I really think we need to continue that fight to figure out what does justice look like when it comes to sexual assault. Sure. And yet in addition, potentially voting for Joe Biden, is that the strategic move? Pushing him on that issue? Donald Trump. I think you know we have to get rid of Donald Trump. <laughs> and we have to keep fighting for the issues and policies that we care about though. And we're gonna have to have that fight no matter who's president. Thank you so much, Jessica Skarain. Best of luck, let us know how we can support your campaign or how people can get involved. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is the most winnable Senate race in the country. Um, so you can go to justfordelaware.com to find out more about me and donate at justfordelaware.com slash donate. We always need volunteers, so that's justfordelaware.com slash volunteer. Excellent, thank you so much, Jess, best of luck. Thank you, thank you. Welcome back to the conversation. I am Francesca Fiorentini, you know, your sometimes host and whatever. Uh, hope you guys are still doing well. I'm excited to bring in our next guest. Um, she was a former White House Senior Director under Obama and she is a host on SiriusXM. Uh, please welcome Nayara Huck. Hey everyone, hey Francesca. Hi Nayara, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Um, so, okay, quickly, because this has been in the news a lot, I'm sure it's not a quick answer, but um, you you worked under President Obama helping um, explain and implement national security priorities. And we're in this moment now where we've heard that Russia has potentially been paying um, bounties on US soldiers heads. And I think especially progressives and people on um, you know, Democrats who are like, how are we supposed to make sense of this? You know, we don't believe in maybe going to war on Russia, but like, what is the right what is the right response? We know what the wrong response has been based on looking at this administration. Well, let's start with the, the wrong response, right? Which is to not pay attention to intelligence information, which is one of the best tools that a president has to be able to execute his commander in chief authority. Um, to essentially have the White House tell the rest of the world, our guy doesn't read. So that's the best explanation is he just doesn't read information and that's the excuse, so we, we look weak against the rest of the world. And to know that several months ago, this information was available. Now, that's not to say it was 100% confirmed, but that's the whole idea of having a daily briefing, of being read in, is for the president to see what's going on in the landscape, to have an understanding of what other people and other countries are doing, so that you can make decisions before it's too late. The other downside of this has been President Trump not informing any of the other allies who work in the area. I mean, the British were potentially targeted by this as well. So this really comes together as one of Trump's America first, but really it's America looking stupid overseas. Now, to the specific of how we respond to Russia, listen, the Russia has been engaged in Afghanistan for decades, right? This goes back to the early 80s when the United States was arming the Mujahideen. Like, this is, Afghanistan has unfortunately been a place where these two great powers have proxy wars. Up until now, we've known it to be cooperation on some things. And on the others, it's, you know, there's counter, counterintelligence gathering. You know, they've been an adversary. This, if they it did indeed put bounties on American soldiers' heads, takes it to the next level. That takes mm. it to the level of now you're an enemy. Mm. Um, and it also raises the question of what is the United States still doing there, right? What is our goal in Afghanistan that we're there? That cannot be the place where we counter Russia and only there just to counter Russia. We have to have our own objectives for being there. And we have to be working in support of the Afghan people. And that's becoming increasingly difficult as Afghanistan breaks down into civil war. Sure, I mean, I think for a lot of people who are tired of endless wars and especially mm -hmm. Afghanistan going on 20 years. Um, is it responsible though to pull troops out? And can you do that in a way um, that, that that is responsible, right? Like I, I I think a lot of people grapple with that because they don't understand the particular situation, but they know what's going on right now is clearly not working. 
Right, and we and we know that we've invested at least 20 years, right, of American blood and American treasures, how you know it's referred to, but really it's time and resources and people into trying to bring some stability to the country and then hopefully to the region writ large. I, I think the, the the responsible thing to do is to acknowledge what the United States is capable of doing and what we're not. Right, mm. we are not capable of taking an American style government and just dumping it on another country, right? That that just does not work. We are capable of helping support people coming together in a peace reconciliation process. We've heard it referred to as a negotiations. And it is, we are, I think, capable of working around what could be Taliban objectives, right? It, it, there are other people in this game as well. Mm-hmm. And I hate to refer to it as a game, but that's how it, it's like a chessboard. If the Taliban are going to insist that the Americans are the enemy at all costs and nothing can be done with that, then that's something we have to grapple with and understand that there's only so far we can do. Now, if the Taliban are willing to negotiate and have a conversation about laying down arms and what coming together as part of a government or looks like, then that's something the United States does have expertise in supporting and we can do that with our allies. But at minimum, at minimum, the American public deserves to hear from the commander in chief of what is the point of what we're doing there? How does this meet American objectives? Sure, we can't even get democracy right in our own country. And we know that now more than ever. Thank you so much for explaining that. We could talk all day about Afghanistan, it's endless. But I wanted to pivot to talk about the Veep stakes. You recently actually wrote a piece about Stacey Abrams. And I think rightfully lauding some of her incredible qualities as a potential Veep pick. Then you talk about something called the Stacey Abrams conundrum. What is that conundrum? I have found just her rise in all of this and how she has approached her ambition to be fascinating. As a woman in the workplace myself, always looking at how other people with high profiles handle these situations. And up until her really starting a campaign and saying, I want to be vice president, the attitude was always, "Oh, let me just kind of pretend I, I don't want the job. And then I got tapped in the shoulder and, and magically now I'm suddenly vice president or president of the United States, right? And, yeah. and that works great if you're a white man with all the right connections. But if you are a black woman from the South who is not petite and has already been targeted by the president of the United States for just how you look, you have to approach it differently. And so I, I, I find it very interesting and I'm learning a lot from her just boldly stating, I want this job, here's what I can do, here's what I bring to the table. Now, she's gotten a lot of negative press. She's not the most progressive of the people being discussed to be vice president. So I'm not saying go with Stacy. What I am saying is there's a lot for us to learn from how she's gone about it. And I think ultimately her asking for what she wants is a great attitude for women. And it's only put her in a better position for whatever she chooses to do next. I'm curious that you said she's not the most progressive because I see her as someone who maybe is the only candidate who is, you know, of the of those who are being considered, save Elizabeth Warren, but black female candidates who wasn't a former prosecutor or a police officer. And I know a lot of the BLM energy has been sort of not shining a great light on those records of, let's say, Kamala Harris or even Val Demings. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on that. It, it, the other part of that is that a lot of people are saying Stacey Abrams doesn't have the experience because she wasn't elected, that she didn't win the, the governorship in, in Georgia. 
What, what's your response to that? Is that should yes. that be a consideration? Well, um, let's see, she managed to turn out key voters that Joe Biden will need in the mm-hmm. uh, upcoming election. And she did it in the South. And that's even with the voter suppression tactics. I'm talking about record turnout among African Americans and Latino voters. Um, she has served in several government positions. So it's not like she doesn't have any uh, of the appropriate experience. But that that always ends up being the question when it comes to women who are asking for power is, you haven't done it yet, therefore I'm not going to consider you. As opposed to when men, it's the potential. Men can get by the potential. Like Barack Obama was never commander in chief, had not served in the military before he got that job. Neither did Mitt Romney. But that wasn't the same kind of attack against them that you know you don't have the relevant experience. And let's be honest. You know, Joe Biden has not won anything outside of the Senate in a long time either. So right. it's that's the nature of politics. There's there's ups and downs to everyone's careers. The question is, can we look at women candidates equally as male candidates and look at the potential of what they can do? Mm, that's a great point. And we were just talking about Biden winning in a very small Democratic state like Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, are some of the smallest. Uh, electorate, right? So, you know, that's that's not, you know, that that doesn't bode as great for November. It's not in, not insignificant, but yeah. Um, last question: uh, You recently wrote a piece, and it was great, and it was uh, taking from your own personal experience in your life, but basically about how in this new civil rights movement, white people have been coming out to the streets. But that that's the easy part, right? That white people can protest. What do they need to do beyond that? Um, how do we make this struggle um, some, one that can be for the long haul? So I will say I do include myself in this as someone who is not black, but Mm -hmm. I have black family. And so for me, it's been a lot of listening, pay attention and understanding that there is an affirmation that comes with going out to protest. It feels like you are part of a group of people who think like you. The tougher part is when you are around friends or family or in some other work social setting where people you're kind of in the same space as people, but you don't all think alike. And that's when you really have to start to break down the cultural conversations and not cede the space to people just making casually racist or sexist or bigoted comments, right? The idea that we've had, I think as liberals for a long time is let's just keep the peace, let's be civil. And I think of, you know, what's the cultural social version of civil disobedience? Because (laughs) all civility has done is silence those of us who care deeply about these issues and allowed racists to be the ones to dominate the conversation, whether it be at a store, which is what my experience I talked about, or whether it be at a cocktail party. And so that's the day to day work that actually I think is much harder to do and prepare for than making some great signs and going out and just feeling like you're part of a larger community of people. Totally. Um, yes, non-black people need to talk to their families. Call the Karens in your life. Get them yes. back on board. Uh, it, is, and it is not. It is not the work of black people to do that or to tell us to do that. I think that's the most important part. Absolutely, uh, Nayira. Thank you so much. You're wonderful, Nayira Huck. Um, how can we follow you on all the things? I would love to hear you from you on Twitter. It's at Nayaror, N-A-Y-Y-E-R-O-A-R. My DMs are open. I enjoy hearing from people. Follow me also on SiriusXM Progress, where I host a weekly radio show called The Resistance Abroad. Excellent. That's what we needed. The Resistance Abroad or Broad? 
the resistance abroad, but it could be a resistance broad. So <laughs> awesome. That. Yes. All right. Nayira Huck, the resistance abroad. Thank you so much. Take care. You too.